Chapter 7 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Northern Mystery and the Discovery of Alta California. A little farther north, there was the location of those things which, according to present day conceptions, were so mysterious and wonderful though to the Spaniards the mystery was mainly in that their exact location continued to escape them. Still, the searches in the north that were most productive of romancing were with a view to the discovery of something not at all marvelous in itself, and which in fact existed, though to be sure in a less agreeable form than was to be desired, a waterway around or through the continent of North America. Some indication has already been given about the origin of the theory of the strait, and of the attempts to find it at Panama, and then ever and ever more to northward. As early as 1541, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado had carried the strait at least as far north as Kansas, and in 1543, Bartolome Ferrello sailed along the Pacific coast to about the present northern boundary of California while swarms of European navigators from many countries ranged up and down the Atlantic coast. But it must be remembered that there were scores of others who said that they had been yet farther, even to the strait itself, or almost that far, and there was hardly a man but knew, or had heard of, somebody who had been through the strait. The Indians, too, from a spirit of childlike exaggeration, or because the white men did not clearly understand them, or indeed because their own information was rather vague, repeatedly confirmed conjectures as to its existence. Inevitably, the strait was surrounded with a glamour which introduced wealthy kingdoms and rich cities along its banks, all the wonderful things that men had expected to find elsewhere. Thus it was that fiction became fact in its influence upon actual explorations. But for this influence, says Bancroft, it may almost be doubted that Spanish occupation at the end of the 17th or even the 18th century would have extended above Colima on the Pacific and Penuco on the Atlantic side. Since men did not clearly know what was real and what was not, they went farther and farther afield to penetrate the northern mystery, and in particular to discover the secret of the strait. The search for the strait on the Atlantic side, from Darien to Hudson Bay, does not need to be told here. Eventually it narrowed down to seeking of the Northwest Passage. The names of Hudson, Baffin, Davis, and James have been perpetuated on the map as a result of their search for the elusive strait. Meanwhile, a ceaseless campaign of discovery was being undertaken from the Pacific side, but here the seekers were almost all of them in the Spanish service, and the waterway became known as the Strait of Anian. It is to be borne in mind, too, that the idea of the existence of a practicable way of communication between the two oceans was not given up until the last decade of the 18th century, after 300 years of effort. Over a century later, a boat did sail by way of the Northwest Passage, or Strait of Anian, around North America from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Roald Amundsen was the skipper, and his little craft, the Gioa, now rests high and dry on the Cliffhouse Beach by San Francisco, with its prow looking out to sea.
the governing authorities of spain would have preferred to believe that there was no strait since its existence would be to that country's disadvantage furnishing a route to rival nations or to freebooters whence they might attack the rich kingdoms of new spain but if there were such a strait spain wished to be the first to find it so as to fortify it and prohibit its use by others for three centuries the fear of foreign attack by way of the strait or by way of some unknown great river connected possibly with the great lakes was one of the leading factors in inducing spain to make preventative conquests in the north and especially this was true as affecting the spanish advance toward and into the californias the story of the search for the strait of anian is one of the most fascinating tales in the annals of the new world one way to trace it is through the medium of cartography which is one of the most enlightening sources for an understanding of european notions in general about the americas some idea has already been given of the progress of geographical thought of the early theories based on the belief that north america was asia and that the strait was in the vicinity of panama followed by the conjecture that north america was a southeastward projection from asia but with a continuance of belief in the possibility of the strait as time went on the idea of the strait returned with new intensity this was in part due to actual discoveries such as those of the great inlets of the atlantic coast in part to the false or exaggerated stories that were told and in part to a survival of old ideas an example of the last named influence was the persistence of the legend of atlantis the island continent which the ancients said had disappeared beneath the sea with the gradual elimination of the north america as asia idea men wondered whether they might not have found the long-lost continent and if that were the case there had to be a strait or passage around it since atlantis was an island all of these changes in belief found record in the maps for example the earliest known map of america that made by juan de la cosa in 1500 indicated the possibility of a strait in central america though with due regard to the reputed position of what we now call the strait of malacca he placed it below the equator Ruch's map of 1508 had south america as the new world widely separated by sea though indicated as uncertain from the west indies and asia which was in the position that north america actually occupies scherner in 1520 had a small north america called cuba a strait in central america and a channel separating it on the west from the nearby island of japan in 1530 edition of the works of ptolemy a greek geographer of the second century north america was larger was included as part of the new world and had no strait but did not extend far to the north leaving a passage around it japan and asia were only a few miles to the west orontius fine in 1531 reverted to the original idea that north america was asia and south america a southeastward extension from it with no strait except the one discovered by magellan the Münster map of 1545 is similar to the above-named map of 1530, but North America extended farther north, 
and was separated by a strait from asia and a gigantic iceland of about the same size as north america and these two in turn were separated from each other by a strait the first map showing north america approximately as it is was issued by ramusio in 1556 about the only strange feature was the appearance of the mythical quivira in alta california blanks were left for the regions beyond which actual discoveries had been made homem in 1558 had a narrow north america running from southwest to northeast paralleling the line of the atlantic coast homem had a number of straits the most prominent of which was by way of the gulf of st lawrence the great Ortelius, in 1574, issued a map which, like that of Ramusio, was substantially correct, showing the strait past the kingdom of Anian at about the point where Bering Strait, in fact, enters the Arctic Ocean. Wild geography was by no means dead, however. For example, Locke's map of 1582 showed an open sea above North America, which extended to about 45 degrees in the extreme northwest and to about 63 degrees in the northeast, at which point the strait appeared. Incidentally, the kingdom of Quivira again found lodging in Alta California. Even to the close of the 18th century, there was a strange mixture of the real with the fabulous. De La Isle's map of 1752 was substantially accurate as far north as Cape Mendocino, but just above that there was a great inland reaching western sea and beyond that at about fifty degrees a strait went through to hudson bay in seventeen seventy eight the american traveller jonathan carver indicated a river which had its sources near those of the missouri and emptied into the pacific and as late as seventeen eighty two there was the hanbier map showing an enormous sea of the west with communication by rivers with the waterways of the east. Incidentally, these maps showed where mermaids were to be found, and Amazon islands, and other strange things. Footnote 1. For a proper understanding of this subject, one needs to study the maps. See Bancroft, Hubert Howe, History of the Northwest Coast, San Francisco, 1886. Of still greater importance for the investigator is the Ruth Putnam collection of maps in the Bancroft Library of the University of California. In footnote. The records are also teeming with memorials about the strait. There is one account by Menendez de Aviles, the Spanish conqueror of Florida. According to Menendez, he met a man in 1554 who said he went through the strait from the Atlantic to the Pacific on a French vessel. The vessel was wrecked on the return voyage, and the narrator of the story alone escaped. A certain Fernandez de Ladrillero made a sworn statement that he had been on a voyage many years before that got near the strait on the northwest coast, but storms and damage to the ships had forced a return. He also knew an Englishman who had entered the strait while fishing for cod, Undoubtedly, Fernandez told the truth as he saw it. It would seem that he was on the Ulloa voyage and that the Englishman had entered the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Drake, who was in Alta California in 1579, 
was believed by many Spaniards to have returned to England through the strait, and their view was confirmed several years later by a foreign pilot named Morena, who told his story to a governor of New Mexico. Morena said that Drake had put him ashore in the vicinity of the strait while he was sick. Recovering his health, he had then wandered about for four years, and at length came to an arm of the sea dividing New Mexico from a great western land. This body of water extended northward, he believed, to the strait, and its banks had many large settlements, including a nation of white people. This sounded similar to the great western river of which Espejo had heard during his expedition of 1581 to 1583, for that, too, was rumored to have rich towns on its banks. But Espejo's river was real, the Colorado, and the rich towns were the pueblos of the Moquis, which to Espejo's Indian informants seemed remarkably wealthy. When John Smith was captured by the Indians in 1607, on the occasion when Pocahontas intervened to save him, he was exploring the Chickahominy River for a passage to the Pacific. Father Marquette heard in 1673 that from point five or six days up the Missouri, there was a stream which went to the Gulf of California, and he hoped to make the discovery. One of the most remarkable stories was that of Diego de Peñalosa, an ex-governor of New Mexico. He said that in 1662 he made an expedition far to the northeast of Santa Fe and came to the city of Quivira. After marching for two leagues through part of Quivira, Peñalosa sent out an exploring party which was unable to get to the end of the city. The natives said that there were other provinces further on, which were so rich that even their ordinary dishes were made of gold and silver. Moreover, this land was along the sea, where ships might reach it easily. Three voyages stand out from the rest as the most important among those that were never made, the so-called fictitious or apocryphal voyages of Juan de Fuca, Maldonado, and Fonte. In 1596, Fuca told the Englishman Locke that he had been in command of a Spanish voyage of 1592 up the Pacific coast in search of the strait. He had found the strait beyond 47 degrees and sailed through it, after which he returned to Acapulco. The Maldonado voyage was supposed to have been made in 1588, but the story was first told in 1609. According to Maldonado, he had entered the strait off the coast of Labrador, coming out in the Polar Sea and then passing through another strait in 60 degrees into the Pacific Ocean. Fonte is supposed to have made his voyage in 1640, though both Fonte and the story were invented in 1708. Fonte made his voyage from the Pacific side and entered a river at 53 degrees. Eventually, he met a Boston ship coming from Massachusetts, and this proved the existence of the strait. These reputed voyages are entirely discredited now, but they had a tremendous influence on explorations. The Spaniards, under whose auspices they were supposed to have been made, never believed in these voyages, for their records contained nothing about them. But the French and the English did credit them down to the close of the 18th century. They thought the Spaniards had discovered the strait, 
and wished themselves to share in its advantages. It is often said that the Spaniards lost interest in the northern mystery, but there is a continuous documentary record at least as late as 1776 showing that they gave attention to the strait or river of the west and persisted in their search in fear that the English or French had already discovered such a passage or that they might be on the point of doing so. Indeed, one of the primary objects of an official Spanish voyage of 1791 was to settle, once and for all, the question of the strait. Incidentally, the fame of at least one fictitious voyager, Juan de Fuca, has been recognized by posterity in the application of his name to the strait that enters Puget Sound, and also to a cigar. It is probable that the mountain peaks of Alta California may have been seen by some of the early Spanish expeditions to the Colorado, which thus may have a certain claim for the discovery of the land. Ulloa went to the head of the Gulf of California in 1539. In 1540, Hernando de Alarcón duplicated this achievement and ascended the Colorado for a number of miles in small boats. In the same year, Melchor Diaz, in command of a branch of the Vasquez de Coronado expedition, marched overland to the Colorado with a view to cooperating with Alarcón. Both of these men, it would seem, did not get as far north as the Gila, wherefore it is likely that they did not actually reach Alta California soil. The direct cause of the first expedition which is known to have set foot in Alta California was the search for the Strait of Anian. Beyond Ulloa's farthest north, there remained an untried course, which the Viceroy Mendoza resolved to exploit, in the hope that he would find the much-desired strait, and thus provide an all-Spanish direct route from Spain to the East Indies. In command was a certain Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, a Portuguese by birth and a skilled mariner. The chief pilot, an eventual leader of the expedition, after the commander's death, was Bartolome Ferrero, described as a native of the Levant. On June 27, 1542, Rodriguez, or as he has always, though improperly, been called, Cabrillo, set sail from Navidad on the west coast of New Spain with his own and another ship under his command. The vessels were smaller than any of our coasting schooners, wrote George Davidson. They were poorly built and very badly outfitted. Their anchors and ironwork were carried by men from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific. They were manned by conscripts and natives, were badly provisioned, and had the crews subject to that deadly scourge of the sea, scurvy. Arrived at the mouth of the Gulf of California, that body of water was found to be in its all-too-customary state, and it took four days to cross over. Thereafter, Rodriguez proceeded leisurely up the western coast of the peninsula, stopping frequently. While at San Quentin, a little above the 30th parallel, he was informed by the Indians that there were white men farther east. On four other occasions at San Diego, Catalina Island, San Pedro, and Ventura, the Indians told the same story. It is probable that the word had been passed on from tribe to tribe of the Vasquez de Coronado expedition or its offshoots toward the Colorado. 
at last on thursday september twenty eighth fifteen forty two after three months of voyaging rodriguez and his men discovered a port closed and very good which they named san miguel they were in fact at san diego and had achieved for themselves the glory of discovering alta california all unwittingly for to them it was the same land as before that same day they entered the port and went ashore the indians were greatly terrified and in the night fired arrows at some of the spaniards who were fishing wounding three of them it appears that their fear was inspired by accounts they had received of the spaniards in the east who had been reported as killing many natives but here as elsewhere rodriguez made gifts to the indians and gave them no occasion for terror or resentment after a stay of six days at san diego the fleet put out to sea again and took four days to reach catalina island where rodriguez arrived on october seventh next day he stopped at san pedro proceeding on the following day to santa monica on the tenth the fleet reached ventura where the indians came out to meet them in large canoes each of which held twelve or thirteen men for the fifth time the spaniards were told of men like themselves to the east and heard also that there was a great river which may have kindled hopes respecting the chief object of their voyage friday the thirteenth had no terrors for them for on that day they resumed the voyage going up the santa barbara channel and anchoring on successive days at rincon carpinteria for five miles west of point goleta refugio ten miles farther on gaviota pass at point conception which they reached on october eighteenth this being the farthest north that any landing was made here they encountered a strong northwest wind they stood out to sea to southward and soon made port at Cuyler's harbor at the island of san miguel rodriguez remained here for a week in the course of which he had a fall breaking his arm near the shoulder nevertheless he gave orders to continue the voyage for a month now from october twenty fifth to november twenty third the expedition encountered storms rodriguez and his men seemed to have rounded point conception and at one time tried quote, to approach the mainland in search of a large river which they had heard was on the other side of cape galera or point conception and because on the land there were signs of rivers but they found none neither did they anchor here because the coast was very bold unquote. forced back by the storm they returned to the gaviota pass anchorage for a stay of five days putting out again on november sixth they took several days to reach and get around the point but were then driven to sea by a storm and did not make land again for eight days so great was the swell of the ocean that it was terrifying to see says the chronicler of the voyage who was on the flagship adding later that those on the other ship had experienced greater labor and risk than those of the captain's ship since it was a small vessel and had no deck for four days the two ships lost sight of each other on the fourteenth those on the flagship sighted land at northwest cape in thirty eight degrees thirty one minutes near fort ross having passed without seeing them such important parts of the coast as the bay of monterey the golden gate and the bay of san francisco and drake's bay the storm which had driven them north shifted to another quarter 
and compelled them to run south. On the 16th, they discovered Drake's Bay, but were unable to go ashore, though they remained in that vicinity until November 18th. It was on the last named day that they came nearest to discovering the Bay of San Francisco, which they seemed to have passed. The entry in the journal for that day is as follows. Quote, the following Saturday, they ran along the coast and at night found themselves off Cape San Martin, or Point Pinos. All the coast run this day is very bold. The sea had a heavy swell and the coast is very high. There are mountains which reach the sky and the sea beats upon them. When sailing along near the land, it seems as if the mountains would fall upon the ships. They are covered with snow to the summit and they named them the Sierras Nevadas, snowy mountains. At the beginning of them, a cape is formed which projects into the sea, and which they name Cape Nieve, Cape Snow. The two places named were regarded by Davidson as the Santa Cruz Mountains and Black Mountain, but, since few writers have been able to agree as to the precise route of the voyage, one wonders if the storm-tossed navigators might actually have seen the Golden Gate, mistaking one headland at its entrance for a point running into the sea. At any rate, the vessel seemed to have followed the coast this day, and not to have been troubled by fog. Several days later, on November 23rd, they entered Coolier's Harbor again, glad, no doubt, of the opportunity that port afforded them for a respite from their experiences. They had found no shelter at all in their voyage beyond Point Conception, the journalist records, for the coast was bold and rugged and they had met with strong winds and a heavy sea. The weather was now so continuously bad that a stay of nearly three months was made on the islands of the Santa Barbara Channel, mostly at San Miguel. On January 3rd, 1543, while they were still at this island, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo died as a direct result of the broken arm he had suffered there several months before. Undoubtedly, the exposure to which he had been subjected in the difficult voyage of November had been more than he could stand. Courageous to the end, he charged his men with his dying words to carry on the voyage and explore as much as possible of that coast. In every way, it would seem, this man, the earliest of Alta California's heroes, is worthy of the respect of posterity. Martin Fernandez Navarrete, a distinguished Spanish historian, has this to say of Rodriguez's achievement. Quote, Those who know the coast which Rodriguez Cabrillo discovered and explored, the kind of vessels in which he undertook the expedition, the rigorous season during which he pursued his voyage in those intemperate climes, and the state of the science of navigation at that period, cannot help admiring a courage and intrepidity which, though common among seafaring Spaniards at that time, cannot be appreciated in our day, when the navigator is fairly dazzled by the assistance furnished him through the wonderful progress of the arts and sciences, rendering his operations easier and supplying him with advantages which, as they were lacking to the early discoverers, make their courage and perseverance as portentous as their discoveries. If it was difficult in Fernandez's day to appreciate the problems that confronted the navigators of Rodriguez's time, 
how much more lacking in a conception of the dangers they had to face must people of this day be for the fernandez account was published in eighteen o two when nautical science was much less advanced than it has since become in honor of their dead commander his companions changed the name of the island where he died from posesion which they had called it before to the island of juan rodriguez neither the name nor the full meed of that pilot's glory has however been preserved to him bartolome ferrello now took command and on february eighteenth after some preliminary cruisings of little moment resumed the voyage going out to sea before rounding point conception he did not approach the coast until he had reached northwest cape at rodriguez's farthest north proceeding under great difficulties with but little opportunity to view the coast ferrello is believed to have passed beyond what is now the northern boundary of california to about opposite the rogue river in oregon in latitude forty two degrees thirty minutes the account of the voyage that day march one fifteen forty three makes it perfectly clear why ferrello then turned back Quote, they ran this night, February 28th, to the west-northwest, with great difficulty, and on Thursday, March 1st, in the morning, the wind shifted to the southwest with great fury, the seas coming from many directions, causing them great fatigue in breaking over the ships, and as they had no decks, if God had not succored them, they could not have escaped. Not being able to lay to, they were forced to scud northeast toward the land, and now, thinking themselves lost, they commended themselves to Our Lady of Guadalupe and made their vows. Thus they ran until three o'clock in the afternoon, with great fear and travail, because they concluded that they were about to be lost. For they saw many signs that the land was nearby, both birds and very green trees which came from some rivers. Although, because the weather was very dark and cloudy, the land was invisible." At this hour, the mother of God succored them by the grace of her son, for a very heavy rainstorm came up from the north, which drove them south with foresails lowered all night and until sunset the next day, and as there was a high sea from the south, it broke every time over the prow and swept over them as over a rock. The wind shifted to the northwest and to the north-northwest with a great fury, forcing them to scud to the southeast and the east-southeast until Saturday the 3rd of March, with a sea so high that they became crazed, and if God and his blessed mother had not miraculously saved them, they could not have escaped. With respect to food, they also suffered hardship, because they had nothing but damaged biscuit. Yet, the diarist records that they believed there was a very large river in the vicinity of their farthest north. They did not wholly forget their quest for the passage through the continent, though the storm did not permit them to stop for a search. Meanwhile, their troubles were not over. On March 4th, the flagship lost sight of the consort, and when days mounted into weeks without news of her, she was believed to have been lost. Arrived at the island of Juan Rodriguez on March 5th, Ferrello was unable to enter the port, so terrible was the storm, but soon found shelter behind Santa Cruz Island. 
Going southward now, Ferrello stopped at Ventura, Catalina Island, and San Diego in Alta California, making futile inquiries for the lost ship. He does not seem to have been so careful to please the Indians as Rodriguez had been, for there is no further mention of the giving of presents, and at Ventura, Ferrello secured four Indians, and at San Diego secured two boys to take to New Spain as interpreters. On March 17th, he left San Diego and went successively to the Bay of Todos Santos, San Quintin, and Cerros Island in Baja California. On March 26th, while they were at that island, the consort came out of the sea to the great rejoicing of all. It had been missing for three weeks. As told in the journal, quote, they thought they would be lost, but the sailors promised Our Lady to make a pilgrimage to her church naked, and she saved them. Supplies were now too low to permit their resuming the exploration, so they returned to the port of origin, Navidad, arriving there on April 14, 1543. How many returned of those who had in the first place set out from there, the journal did not say. The rodriguez Ferrello expedition had not discovered the strait, nor any wealthy kingdom of Cavira, wherefore in some senses it had been a failure. It had, however, made known some 800 miles more of coast and its trend northwestward toward Asia. The strait had therefore been very appreciably pushed to the north and farther away from New Spain. This might well have been considered a satisfactory achievement by the Viceroy Mendoza. To Californians, however, it is enough that Rodriguez and Ferrello had given them a noble tradition, a discovery of Alta California under conditions requiring a courage and tenacity that seemed to have been almost superhuman. Footnote. The principal item used, together with the general histories, in the preparation of this chapter was the following. Spanish Exploration in the Southwest, 1542-1706, translated and edited by Herbert Eugene Bolton, New York, 1916, in Original Narratives of Early American History Series. In footnote. End of chapter 7.